I now, as ever, would avoid any discussion of the woman question. But when a man advises me to withdraw from a society or convention, or not to act there according to the dictates of my own judgment, I am constrained to reply, thou canst not touch the freedom of my soul. I deem that I have duties to perform here. I make no onset upon your opinions and prejudices, but my moral responsibility lies between God and my own conscience. No human being can have jurisdiction over that. Those are the words of 19th century author and abolitionist Lydia Maria Child, an enormously influential figure who has been mostly forgotten today. Her words are read here by historian Lydia Moland, whose recent book should bring back the public recognition Child so richly deserves. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In the 1820s, Lydia Maria Child was one of the most popular writers in America. She wrote a blockbuster novel about interracial romance. She published a guidebook for housewives, and she founded the first American magazine for children. And then... She threw away that success by becoming a fierce and controversial advocate for freeing the country's enslaved people and for racial equality. Lydia Moland, a professor of philosophy at Colby College in Maine, is the author of a recent book about this amazing figure, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Listen and learn from Lydia Moland why Lydia Mariah Child is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today to Lydia Moland. Welcome, Lydia. We're delighted to have you with us for this conversation. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Well, in the 19th century, Lydia Mariah Child was famous as an author, an abolitionist, a feminist, a crusader for Native American rights, but few contemporary Americans had ever heard of her until your recent book. Um, if they did know her name, I think it was for writing the classic Thanksgiving song, Over the River and Through the Woods, which we're all familiar with. But why has she been forgotten and what should she be remembered for? Yes, it's a wonderful question. So Child was born in 1802. And by the time she was a young woman still in the 1820s, she was already a beloved and very famous author. She'd written a couple of novels. She'd written some children's literature. She'd written a self-help book, which I think we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so she was really the 19th century equivalent of a household name already. Mm. And then in 1830, she converted to abolitionism which was the, at that time, very radical claim that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslavers. And this, um, some people have compared that to, the, the radical nature of that, to being, to saying that you were a communist in the 1950s, for instance. Mm -hmm. It was just um, a real social taboo. Most Northerners 
if they disapproved of slavery, thought that it was probably unfortunate, but there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it, and probably it was best to just leave it well enough alone. But Child decided in 1830, when she converted to abolitionism, that she would devote the rest of her life to fighting slavery and fighting for racial justice. So she spent the next three years researching and writing a book that she published in 1833 called An Appeal for That Class of Americans Called Africans. Mm. And this book was just a, a fire hose of arguments against the excuses that people had used, that white Americans had used, to turn away from caring about slavery. So there was a chapter on politics and a chapter on history and a chapter on economics, um, all showing that slavery was an evil that the United States needed to eradicate immediately. And then in the last chapter of that book, she turns her attention to her fellow white Northerners and makes very clear that it was their complicity in slavery that allowed slavery to continue. And this was so shocking and so insulting to her readership all over the United States, but especially in Boston, that she was really ostracized for this publication. Her books went out of print. People stopped speaking to her. Her family was embarrassed by her. Um, and she, but she spent the next 50 years of her life just fighting racial injustice in every way she knew how, um, including her life intersecting in fascinating ways with the Civil War era, like the caning of Charles Sumner, um, John Brown's insurrection, Robert Gould Shaw's death, like all of these ways um, that her life that we can learn about those episodes from the way she interacted um, with them. All of that to say, that's what she should be famous for, that lifetime of dedication to fighting racial injustice. It was definitely her life's work. And the fact that she is instead famous for one of our most sentimental poems, mm. the irony of that would not be lost on her. Let me just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly bring her alive in in the real sense that she should be remembered for. I'm wondering, as you're speaking, um, how did you get interested in her? Yes, this is such a wonderful, serendipitous story. So this was really after the 2016 election. I had, I'm a philosopher by training. Uh-huh. I'd been writing about German philosophy for my whole academic career. But after the election of 2016, I just had the sense that I needed to turn to women. I needed to find out how women had faced moral emergencies in the United States. And I had a kind of distant memory that women had been important in the abolitionist movement. I went to the Schlesinger Library at mm -hmm. Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, and I asked the librarians there to help me find a woman who had thought philosophically in the quest to end enslavement in the United States. And completely serendipitously, I was given a box of letters that had a letter by her in it. And it just electrified me. I, I was so moved by it and so touched by how hard she had worked for the cause and how much of her life she had dedicated to it. That when I started reading more about her and realized everything else that she'd done, um, I thought, 
she really needs to be better known. And I think she can help us at a moment of moral emergency in our country today. Well, and how good for us that you did. Did you face any particular challenges in writing about her? (laughs) I would say one of the more humorous challenges is that since she's so little known, her collected correspondence is mostly on microfiche. Um, I hope your listeners even remember what that was. Uh, It's a very antiquated mode of storing information. Um, I remember, you know, working with it in the 80s, but um, her her letters haven't been updated. There is a wonderful collection of them and a reader that has been published by Carolyn Karcher that has some of her writings. But I needed to spend week after week after week at a microfiche machine at the Boston Athenaeum reading her correspondence. So that was a a kind of amusing challenge. And I I would say the other challenge was just trying to learn enough of my own country's history to be able to explain things to readers, like why were there violent anti-abolitionist mobs in the North for years? And why were so many abolitionists uneasy with John Brown's raid? And why were there so many um, contorted arguments made around the 15th Amendment? All of those things just took a lot of um, reading and thinking and researching on my part. It was a joy and it was a challenge. Yeah. And and you had to be determined to be able to do it, uh, given some of those challenges. Well, Her first book was a novel called Habamak, which was published in 1824 when she was only 22. And it caused a scandal. Tell us why, what it was about that book that was so controversial. Yes, this is a a fascinating story. So this novel was essentially about a love triangle uh, that featured a young white European settler named Mary. Um, a young Englishman named Charles, and a Native American warrior um, whom she called Habamak. And the way the plot develops, at a certain point, Mary thinks that Charles has died and, for complicated reasons, blames her father for it. And as a kind of revenge against her very puritanical father, she runs away and marries this Native American warrior, Uh who, it's very clear, loves her dearly. She lives with him. She loves him in return. They have a child together. And then, lo and behold, Charles shows up again. He's not dead. Um, And Habamak, at that point, decides to cede his right to both his wife and their son to this European. So he just um, disappears into the forest and is never seen again. So as I say in the book, it's almost like she managed to put together a plot that included an insubordinate daughter, an indictment of a Puritan, interracial sex, a mixed race child, and a kind of divorce. I mean, it was like all of the taboos um, at once that she was breaking. But even beyond that, the book was scandalous because it did not end the way most literature about Native Americans at that point ended which was in a kind of violent victory by the European settlers over the Native Americans. So instead, the picture that Child gives us is of a Native American warrior 
who is willing to go away in a kind of noble sacrifice. And that was part of her way of saying, in a way that she really regretted later, but it was her way of saying, um, we do not want to perpetuate injustice against Native Americans, but they will eventually fade away. And it was about five years later that she completely changed her mind about that. She decided that holding that kind of opinion was wrong and injurious to Native Americans. And she really spent the rest of her life arguing when she talked about Native Americans that they had every right to continue to exist that that European settlers did. Utterly fascinating. So we go on to 1826 when she founded and edited the first American children's magazine, The Juvenile Miscellany. What were her views on children and how should how should they be treated those views? Yes, the these were wonderful publications for children that she did in the 1820s. They were full of, like the juvenile miscellany was full of games and puzzles and fiction and nonfiction and poetry. It was a quarterly publication. So people long into middle age would remember how excited they were when it arrived at their doorstep and they could read it. And it was popular up and down the East Coast. And exactly as you say, her views about children are really interesting and in many ways very progressive um, Mm. insofar as she thought that children should be treated kindly. You should never lie to your children. You should encourage their native curiosity. You should give them toys that help them learn. You should treat them with respect. They should get lots of exercise. They should play outside. The girls should also get to play. And she was also very stern and principled, but there's always a kind of undercurrent that children are human beings to be treasured and nurtured and um, given a foundation to become good American citizens by developing virtues like honesty and integrity and patience. So they're, they're wonderful even to read today. In fact, believe it or not, I found one in a gift shop the other day Um, just along with like Christmas ornaments and things people were buying. And the owner of the shop said that they were selling really well. So there you go. My (laughs) goodness. So did somebody revive the magazine? Yes. And I'm sorry, this wasn't the magazine. I should have corrected that. This was something she wrote called The Mother's Book. That is just a book full of advice for mothers. She herself never had children, but she had been living with a sister who um, had a large family, and she apparently picked up a lot of parenting advice from that. Hmm. So then we go to 1829 when she published her most popular book, The Frugal Housewife. Now, what made it so different from her other books of the time or other guidebooks of the time? And why was it such a hit? Yes, this was another thing she published that people would talk about well into adulthood. They would remember how their mothers cooked out of it, and they would, in some cases, remember how disappointed they were that the Frugal Housewife book said that their mothers shouldn't buy preserves for them, which I guess was the equivalent of buying candy or something. Um, It was a book, exactly as the title said, um, Child Wanted to Write a cookbook for those who were not aspiring to be wealthy. So it was a a wonderful thing for these beginning decades of the United States when a lot of people 
didn't have a lot of money and did need to know how to make do with preserving things and conserving things, knowing how to use every part of a cut of meat or every part of a vegetable for um, cooking. It also had wonderful just house cleaning tips about getting rid of bed bugs or stuffing a mattress with feathers or helping someone who'd sprained their ankle. So it was really meant to empower Americans to be self-sufficient. And it was also a kind of political treatise insofar as every once in a while, in the midst of talking about some recipe, she'll just break off and say something like, we really will never succeed as a country unless we know how to resist becoming an aristocracy. And we'll only manage to avoid being an aristocracy if we all know how to cook and clean for ourselves. Oh, my goodness. So it's really a multi-layered publication that I think appealed so much to Americans at that moment who wanted to figure out what it meant to be American in very everyday ways, like how to roast a goose. And also big principled ways, like what kind of attitude to have towards consumption or towards aristocratic tendencies and income inequality. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Well, she was very prolific, it seems, as a writer, because she went on to publish an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, the first book-length anti-slavery work. So tell us what was notable about this book and what was its impact. Yes, the that appeal was in a tradition already that had, as one example, David Walker's Appeal. David Walker was a black man living in Boston, and he published something. It had a very long title. It's usually called Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. And that book was um, a denunciation of American slavery, both in religious terms and in political terms. So David Walker excoriated Americans for calling themselves Christians and being willing to enslave people and to torture those people, to break up families, um, to steal their labor. And he also excoriated them for failing America's political principles. And he was very explicit about Thomas Jefferson in particular being an example of someone who could articulate very lofty values and then was not living up to them. Those were a kind of series of addresses and the way I think Child um, expands on that and, and goes in a different direction, in a more argumentative direction, is that she really accumulates evidence from travelers' accounts in the South, from Southern laws about who could be enslaved, how much an enslaved person should be punished, under what conditions um, enslaved people could be allowed to read, all of these things that were evidence for Northern readers especially that American enslavement was particularly evil. So as I said earlier, she has whole chapters on why slave economies are worse than 
economies that use free labor. She has a whole chapter on how cowardly Northern politicians had been in the face of Southern um, enslavers. And then in this last chapter, as I say, she very clearly um, indicts Northerners for profiting from the slave trade, for profiting on, on crops that had been grown by enslaved people like cotton, but then also for being, um, for having racist beliefs that meant that they treated Black people terribly. So keeping them out of churches and schools and stagecoaches and hotels. She talks about people yelling racial epithets in the street. Um, and, and she just very clearly says, without that prejudice in the North, slavery would not succeed in the South. Mm. And I've lived in the North my whole life, and I do think that we all too often have a kind of sense of superiority, moral mm-hmm. superiority, insofar as we think that slavery was a Southern problem and racism is a Southern problem. And Child was just not having that. She would not allow her fellow Northerners um, to forget that slavery existed in part because of their willingness to indulge in these kinds of prejudices. Did the influence of this work live on for some time or... Yes. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that part of the question. Absolutely. So there are a couple of really influential abolitionists who were won over to abolitionism through her writing. Mm -hmm. One was Charles Sumner. So the, the senator from Massachusetts who much later, right before the Civil War, was beaten bloody and unconscious on the Senate floor for his abolitionist beliefs. So he was one of her Um, disciples, as it were. Another one um, was Wendell Phillips, who was one of the most important orators of the abolitionist movement, who became an abolitionist after he read The Appeal. And then the other one is uh, that I'll just mention is Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was one of the people who funded John Brown's insurrection in Virginia. Mm. And he too said that he came to abolitionist beliefs through Child's writings. But there are also people would write to her through her whole life and say things like, I read your works when I was a child and they formed my life's opinions. And I'm so grateful to you for setting me on a good course of moral behavior. Well, that's high praise. And clearly she yes. made a difference, <laughs> um, yeah. which is rather extraordinary. So where was she on women's rights? Did she have any relationships with other feminists of the time? Was that something that she wrote about or spoke out about? Yes, definitely. I I would say that her relationship to women's rights was a little more complicated than her um, attitude towards abolitionism. She felt so uncomplicated and devoted to the abolitionist cause. But early in her life, she felt sort of ambivalent about promoting her rights as a woman. And, and I think that's really interesting. She would often say, I'm more comfortable advocating for other people's rights than for my own, mm-hmm. which is admirable, of course. And there's no question that the abolition of slavery was a moral imperative um, in a way that she very rightly responded to. She also got really caught up in one of the most painful moments in the abolitionist movement which was when abolitionists split over the question of whether women should be allowed to speak. 
So as many of your listeners will know, there's a biblical passage that's often been used to uh, claim that women should not be allowed to speak in public. At the beginning of the abolitionist movement, um, among the people who were the most radical, that was not a problem. And women were actually encouraged to speak, especially if they were leaders in the movement like she was. But as the movement grew and started to include more conservative members, they started to say, uh, we need the women to stand back and not to advocate and certainly not to speak um, in public. And so that put people like Child and other women that she was working with, like the Grimke sisters, um, in the position of having to fight for women's rights first in order to continue to fight for the abolition of slavery. So if you don't mind, I have a really quick quote that I just love from her uh, from this stage of the of the fight within the abolitionist movement. She says, I now, as ever, would avoid any discussion of the woman question. But when a man advises me to withdraw from a society or convention, or not to act there according to the dictates of my own judgment, I am constrained to reply, thou canst not touch the freedom of my soul. I deem that I have duties to perform here. I make no onset upon your opinions and prejudices but my moral responsibility lies between God and my own conscience. No human being can have jurisdiction over that. So that was her her response to the men who wanted her to back off so that uh, she as a woman wouldn't get in the way of more conservative members of the movement wanting her not to speak. Well, good for her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Way ahead of her time, right? Wait, yeah, absolutely. And then I will say that um, after the war, she was very supportive of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony's um, efforts to get suffrage for women. So there are very enthusiastic letters between them um, at a certain stage. But then, as many of your listeners will know, at a certain point, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton especially when it became clear that the 15th Amendment was going to give the vote to Black men, but not to women, mm-hmm. Stanton and Anthony decided to oppose the 15th Amendment and unfortunately did so sometimes in very racist language and tried to frighten white men out of voting for the 15th Amendment, out of fear of Black men. Mm-hmm. And Child just detested this. Um, she she saw immediately what damage it would do and how wrongheaded it was. So she essentially broke from that part of the movement. She didn't associate with Stanton and Anthony anymore. And instead, through her efforts behind people like Frances Ellen Watkins Harper and Lucy Stone, who were supporting the 15th Amendment and also working for women's suffrage. So Child was someone who her whole life felt very deeply and painfully the limitations imposed on her for being a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she, especially towards the end of her life, wrote with great passion and just argumentative power uh, about that. Well, she, she seems to have accomplished so much. How was she able to do that? And you were just mentioning her great desire to break away from the conventions that were holding women back and writing about that forcefully. 
Uh, how was she able to do that? This is such a great question. And I, you know, in a way, to me, it still feels like a mystery sometimes how mm-hmm. some people marshal the resources to dedicate their whole lives to something, despite, you know, in her case, suffering real poverty for most of her life after she threw away her literary career. I'll just mention two brief things that I that were not barriers for her that I think often are barriers for women and certainly were in the 19th century. The first was that she had a husband who loved her mind and who supported her intellectual pursuits and who encouraged her to write in these quote-unquote masculine spheres like politics and economics. Um, They had a very complicated marriage that was not always good for her. It got so complicated at a certain point that they separated for about 10 years. Mm. But unlike someone like Julia Ward Howe, she was not always fighting with a husband who was trying to hold her intellect back. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also never had children. They did want children, and it was a great sorrow to them that they never had any But she was also very clear that she would not have been able to do what she did had she had children. And I wish that that weren't (laughs) still um, a barrier for many women, but as we know it, it often is. But I will also say that she had a kind of vision of what she wanted her country to be. She, She loved this country so deeply and she loved its principles so deeply that she was heartbroken at all of the ways that uh, we were not living up to our potential. And so I think that gave her enormous energy to fight to get Americans to actually live up to their beliefs. And she also had just a deep conviction about human equality. Many abolitionists, as your listeners will know, were in favor of ending slavery, but they were not in favor of racial equality. So there was an enormous amount of racism within the abolitionist movement itself. And while Child's record on these things is not perfect, she definitely had attitudes towards Black Americans um, that were patronizing or that put burdens on them to behave a certain way so that white people would accept them more. She did believe in racial equality, and that gave her a kind of passion and compassion for anyone who was being treated unjustly that I think made her um, really powerful. And I'll just mention one other thing that I think is so interesting, which is that I think she was really good at knowing what she was good at and what she loved, and then marshalling those things to fight the fight that was most important to her. So she would sometimes say things like, I love this one. Committee work is not my work. <laughs> so 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 she recognized that committees were important to abolitionism, but she hated them. So when she would get on a committee, she would recognize that it kind of sapped her energies and cramped her powers, and so then she would rededicate herself to doing what she could do with real passion and talent, and that was often writing. You know, you said that after the 2016 election, you were just so eager to write about, you know, some of the early pioneering women and what they were able to achieve despite challenges. And I wonder what lessons you take from her life, because clearly she's a most fascinating figure. 
Yes, thank you for that question. I love thinking about that. As as I've said, I'm actually a philosopher and I teach moral philosophy. So I think a lot about the moral questions, the big moral questions in our lives. And I like to think about how I want to live my own life and how I can learn from child's life, um, how to live my own. One of the things that I admire the most about her is she had a kind of fierce humility. So she knew that she could be part of the problem. She knew that white people and that white Northerners and that white women often got in the way of racial progress. And she knew that change had to start with her. And that if she just kept pointing at the South and saying, oh, well, if they would just change, everything would be better. She wouldn't be actually fixing what she could fix, which was her own behavior. So I think I've learned a lot about that from her, about listening and trying to be humble and being more aware of ways in which um, I might be contributing to even the problems that I care most about. And I also think that reading about child's life has triggered in me what I sometimes call moral paranoia, by which I just mean if child was operating in her early 20s as a well-meaning woman who thought of herself as progressive and compassionate and yet was missing some of these major truths about the treatment of Native Americans and also um, about enslavement, then what am I missing? Mm -hmm. What are the moral problems that are staring me in the face but that I am blind to? I think mass incarceration is one that I think about a lot um, as a problem that's very hidden to most of us, but that has many of the same hallmarks of moral atrocity that slavery did. Um, and climate change is another one that I think way too many of us are willing to um, be lulled back into complacency by arguments that we know are bad. And I think Child was so good at diagnosing, essentially saying, I can see that you know that something's wrong here. Now let us think together about what better arguments we can make about how we need to change our lives. You know, you not only have introduced us to a truly remarkable person uh, in our nation's history, Lydia Mariah Child, but you have given us some very profound questions to think about as well for our own lives. And I can't thank you enough for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Lydia Moland. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Lydia Mariah Child is truly an incredible figure in American history. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, what an example of courage. Lydia Mariah Child had it all. Respect, popularity as an author, great sales, and gave it all up to speak out about the injustice of slavery. Second, Mariah Child was able to accomplish so much, partly because she knew her own strengths and weaknesses. She turned down committee work on abolition, even though she realized it was important, because it would sap her energy from her most impactful work, writing. Finally, as Lydia Molan tells us, Mariah Child's example invites us 
to look at our own lives before we try to change the world. What are our blind spots and what can we fix within ourselves that may be contributing to the larger problem? To learn more about this 19th century powerhouse, check out the book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. And tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.